This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, we'll take a look at some of the earliest fighters against mass black incarceration. The last of the Move 9 political prisoners has been released from confinement, and a black scholar discusses peace activism three generations ago. The United National Anti-War Coalition recently held its annual national conference at the People's Forum in New York City. Black Agenda reports senior columnist Margaret Kimberly was one of the speakers. Power to the people. Power to the people. All right. I think the title of our panel is pretty self-explanatory. And we need, we must raise the issue of war and imperialism in electoral politics in this country, not just presidential elections, not just every four years. This weekend, We've said over and over again that we're an anti-imperialist, anti-war group of people. But that's meaningless if we don't use what's left of the democratic uh, electoral process to advocate for our cause. We can't behave as though foreign policy is off limits just because they do that. The uh, recent debates where foreign policy is discussed very little... And then when it is, they all sound the same, even those who are supposed to be progressive sound the same. Other forces do this. They do this all the time. Last night, many of us were here. We saw the very moving film about Gaza. And I watched it. It was interesting because I, there were some new facts for me, but not really. I was aware of the suffering of the people there, that Gaza is a prison for a couple million people, that people are denied the ability to leave for any reason, that they've been deprived of electricity, that the horrible massacre in 2014. And at that time, Michael Bloomberg is in the news, so I'll bring him up. He was mayor of New York City at the time. And he did not just express support for the Israeli government. He flew to Israel had a press conference with Netanyahu and declared that the people of New York City were with Israel. He didn't ask me. I was not with Israel, and I'm sure many of the 8 million other New Yorkers were not either. But this continues, this support for Israel in Congress. The fact that we have, uh, I guess Trump is the most open about doing what Israel wants, but it's not really new. But there is pressure on elected officials, and not just federal officials either, not just members of Congress. There have been a number of laws, including here in New York State, which basically makes BDS, Boycott Divestment Sanctions Against Israel, basically makes it illegal. Any organization that advocates for BDS will be deprived of funding from government. Individuals who participate in BDS 
face all sorts of personal sanctions. There are states that have they have laws that say uh, you can't Georgia, among other Texas people have fought against them. Thank goodness. But these are examples of what other people are doing in the realm of foreign policy issues and the issues of concern to them in politics across the country. Here in New York, there's a huge parade. I think it's in June, a Salute to Israel parade. Every elected official turns out. Everybody who wants to be an elected official turns out. Venezuela is being made an issue in elections here for Florida. It's always been for Cuba with their large anti-Cuban population. And now uh, Venezuela has been added to the pot. So people pander to them in order to get elected. So this is, to, to make a long story short, this is not new. Other people do it. We can do it too. That's our goal at Black Agenda Report. This is something that the black community used to do more forcefully. I mean, many things have changed. That's a whole uh, story for a whole other panel. But we always led in anti-imperialist point of view in foreign policy in this country. And that is what BAP is resurrecting. And we have many campaigns to do just that. At Black Agenda Report, we have made note of this. Uh, last year, we had... Um, Alicia Garza was one of the, known as one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, and she's a, an operative for the Democratic Party. She carried out something called the Black Census Project, a survey of, I think, 30,000 people, some huge number of people, and no question about foreign policy, none whatsoever. So that's a map of Africa, and uh, the red dots show where there are U.S. military bases on the continent. The ones that we know of, actually, it's unclear where they are. They keep them secret. A few years ago, when U.S. soldiers were killed in Niger, there were members of Congress who said they didn't know we had troops in Niger. And I actually believe they were telling the truth. I don't think they were aware that there are U.S. bases all over the continent and military, U.S. military, all over the African continent. This, as many of you are also involved in the campaign to close all U.S. foreign military base, some 800 all over the world. And these are um, those in the African continent. This is part of AFRICOM, U.S. Africa Command, which came into being at the tail end of George W. Bush, Bush 43's administration but was really kicked into high gear by Obama. This is Obama's map more than it is uh, George Bush's map. So as we've talked about already, imperialism is quite bipartisan. We don't have, among the duopoly, an anti-war voice, and we see it quite plainly. A couple of weeks ago, we had the State of the Union address, and this was proof. Juan Guaido was there. He was on a worldwide tour, the man that the United States has chosen to be the president of Venezuela. He's been in Europe. He was in Canada. He was at the State of the Union address. And Nancy Pelosi, who allegedly hates Trump so much and ripped up his speech, she jumped up and applauded when Guaido was there. The sanctions war, as we discussed yesterday, the sanctions being war by other means that are just as deadly as bullets and bombs, 40,000 Venezuelans dead. 
This is not an issue in the presidential campaign. Instead, we see silence or even those who are allegedly progressive going along with what Obama started and Trump ramped up. But I, I have to say something about Guaido, if, you, if you've not seen it. Have you seen any of the footage of him going back home to Caracas? Yeah. If you haven't, you've got to look for this online. If there was any doubt that the people don't want him, uh, he was attacked by a mob. His wife was attacked. There is footage of her people beating him up, some women beating him up. But that is something that I wish uh, everyone could see because it shows what the United States is doing to this country, the violence against this country, that we choose to put this man in power, try to put him in power, thank God not successfully yet, and uh, his people, the people there, do not want him, and they've suffered a lot. They're going hungry, they're dying for lack of medical care, going without power, all sorts of things, in order for the U.S. to try to thwart the will of the people there. So lately, we've seen a return of Russiagate. And Russiagate holds so much power in part because the left has had failed to speak up against it. Russiagate is a tool of, uh, it was all started by Hillary Clinton and her friends in the CIA and the NSA in her failed attempt to keep Donald Trump out of office. And they have since used it to silence to censor people like us at Black Agenda Report. We ended up on one of those lists, the proper not list of people who are allegedly Russian dupes. After two years of investigation, the Mueller investigation, what did they conclude? Who was indicted for colluding with Russia? Nobody. The most they came up with was Facebook ads. They came claimed that people stayed home in Michigan because of Vladimir Putin was willing to spend like $50,000 on Facebook ad. But anyway, but Russiagate is back. And the same people who started it are uh, have revved it up again. So this week we're told that the Russians are again interfering in the election on behalf of Donald Trump and also on behalf of Bernie Sanders, who goes along with these things. And I, I think one of the one of the things we have to stop doing is letting him or anybody else off the hook because they domestically may uh, be in favor of some progressive policies, things that we want to see, and also because they're being, especially uh, Sanders, being beaten up by people we hate and that can cause us to overlook things that we should not overlook. And what did he say? I'll read this quote. Unlike Donald Trump, I do not consider Vladimir Putin a good friend. He's an autocratic thug who is attempting to destroy democracy and crush dissent in Russia. Let's be clear. The Russians want to undermine American democracy by dividing us and uh, dividing us up. And unlike the current president, I stand firmly against their efforts and any other foreign power that wants to interfere in our election in 2016, Russia used internet propaganda to sow division. But this is an example of what we deal with if we don't speak up and if we don't put people on notice that they can't get away with this stuff and still get our support, no matter what else they want to do. We can't go along with this notion that foreign policy is some kind of a frill and that it can be dispensed with in elections. 
So who do we have among the, I mean, we know where Trump stands. He's been, whatever he said in 2016, we know what he's done as president. So uh, we're looking at the Democrats to see where they stand on foreign policy. And Tulsi Gabbard gets credit. She says she's opposed to regime change wars, and that's a good thing. I'm, I'm glad she says that. But the way she frames it, she's always in uniform, and she's always posing, and it's always, I, I was looking at her website, in two, that quote, in 2004, as Tulsi was campaigning for re-election to the State House, the 29th Brigade combat team was called up and began preparing to deploy to Iraq. Tulsi's name was not on the mandatory deployment roster, but she knew there was no way she could stay behind in beautiful Hawaii as her brothers and sisters were sent off to war. So it's an anti-war but pro-war statement. When she talks about war, she talks about what happened to American troops. She doesn't, I haven't heard, if anybody has, let me know, her make reference to the million Iraqis who were killed by the United States. So this is a sort of thing we have to watch out for and we can't let pass without comment. And I wanted to talk about some of the things that many people have let pass. These are some things that uh, Bernie Sanders said to the New York Times. They all have to meet with the New York Times. And he was asked if he would consider military force to preempt an Iranian or North Korea nuclear or missile test. And he said, yes, he would. And that's just what George Bush did, this preemptive war, this claim that the United States has the right to read other countries' minds and say what they're doing or to tell outright lies, which is generally what happens. Uh, He said he would consider military force for a humanitarian intervention. Well, every U.S. intervention is said to be humanitarian. The U.S. is always killing people and claiming it's for their own good. They're helping them out some kind of way. So that doesn't mean anything. How he was asked about Trump's assassination of Soleimani, the Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general. And he repeats the same lies. He says, well, there's evidence he was involved in acts of terror. No, there aren't. He supported attacks on troops in Iraq. No, he didn't. But the question isn't, was he a bad guy, but does his assassinating him make America safer? The answer is no, that we're not safer. So what would he do? Make the claim that we are safer and do the same thing? So then it's, and then this was the, actually, to me, the lowest point this week when this, this new ginned up Russiagate story came along and he goes along with this tale of Russian interference. But then he went on to say, threw his own people under the bus, instead of defending him, all these charges that his supporters are somehow worse than other people and meaner on Twitter. And, but then he said that some of it could have come from Russian bots and not from I felt it was a low point. So I wanted to talk about what we're doing at Black Alliance for Peace. This is our candidate pledge that, uh, and some couple people signed it this weekend. That's great. We are asking candidates to pledge that they will cut the military budget by 50%, among other things. Close AFRICOM. So this is what we are doing to to make good on this. Because as I was pointing out, there are other issues where people at every level of government are asked to go along with the demands of certain groups. And we are definitely sticking with putting our money where our mouths are and in our campaign Uh, asking elected officials and candidates for office to sign our pledge. 
So we do have candidates who have signed our pledge, and this is something that we are committed to continuing to do so that we don't end up like other people. I did want to read something very funny that Trump said. You know, when Trump, when you have to agree with Trump, it's a sign of failure on, on our part. This is something he said in uh, one of his tweets uh, yesterday. He says, uh, MSDNC, MSDNC, Comcast Lime, CNN, and others of the fake media have now added Crazy Bernie to the list of Russian sympathizers, along with Tilsi Gabbard and Jill Stein, both agents of Russia, they say. But now they report President Putin wants Bernie or me to win. The reason for this is that the do-nothing Democrats using disinformation hoax number seven don't want Bernie Sanders to get the Democratic nomination. And they figure this would be very bad for his chances. It's all rigged again against crazy Bernie Sanders. Now, he may call him crazy Bernie Sanders, but he got to the heart of it. And why we see this constant propaganda. So Trump is the one telling us what's what. And t- people are going on Tucker Carlson on Fox News. He's telling us what's what. And Democrats are falling for this again. But we still have our campaigns. We are still making our demands on those in office and those who want to be in office so that we don't see a repeat of this behavior. And we can see the things we want so that uh, there's not one group of people with influence in Washington who promote people being killed in Gaza or Venezuela or any of the countries uh, that are being sanctioned or attacked militarily in this country. Thank you very much. That was Margaret Kimberly, senior columnist for Black Agenda Report. Mass black incarceration has been the norm in the United States ever since the abolition of slavery, and black women have always been in the forefront of prison reform. Nikki Brown is a professor of history at the University of New Orleans. She authored an article in the Journal of African American History titled Keeping Black Motherhood Out of Prison, Prison Reform and Woman Saving in the Progressive Era. We asked Professor Brown why so many prison reformers belong to socially conservative black women's clubs. That is a terrific question, and it's terrific because it gets at the heart of what we think are the foundations or the roots of the reform movement in the United States. We often think about the progressive era, like 1890 to 1920, as being led by revolutionaries, and rightly so, because the Russian Revolution took place in 1917, and there was the end of the of the German Empire after World War One, and we even like to think, for people who don't look too closely at Woodrow Wilson, we think that he's a progressive president as well. But a lot of progressive movements, meaning movements that were based on changing the government, making the government more accountable, and changing the way states dealt with race relations, a lot of those movements came out of what we could call conservative black circles. And so one of the most powerful circles of black women, uh, conservative and liberal, 
was the National Association of Colored Women. And they were, it was an organization that was founded in 1896. And I don't know if it's still in in existence today, but I know that their records are in Washington, D.C. And this organization had some of the most powerful black women in the United States as members. And so as a membership, they would have a meeting every couple of years. And the membership would talk about the most pressing issues facing black women in their particular states and in their particular communities. And this particular organization said that putting black women in, into jail with convict leasing and such was hurting the black community. And they wanted to make communities aware of the injustice and the brutality of that system. And they wanted to come up with alternatives to jail for African-American women. And, and so I wrote that piece largely to look at how kind of not necessarily middle class women, but working class women, church going women, politically active women, how they all thought about how they themselves were at the vanguard at the beginning of the convict leasing or the end the convict leasing movement and to sort of make connections with the end to mass incarceration and the abolition of prison movement now as a way to say that this discussion has been going on for at least a hundred years, if not more so. And African-American women have been part of that as well. Yes, and we must point out that most of these women had been enslaved or were the children of enslaved people. Absolutely. That is absolutely correct. So um, I think the the foremost club woman at the time, Mary Church Terrell, her parents were enslaved, and they were able to earn enough money to buy themselves out of slavery. But they wanted to make sure that she would never be touched by slavery. And she got a very exclusive education. But looking towards other women like Ida B. Wells Barnett, I think that she was born in Mississippi and her parents were enslaved as well. And she is much more politically provocative and active than Mary Church Terrell. But she is also touched by that experience. And that experience of challenging prison really forms much of her ideology for the rest of her life. But these women employed a rhetoric of morality that would not be recognizable to activists Mm -hmm. today. Uh, They focused on the notion of guarding black women's honor. Why was that so important? I think it's important to unpack respectability because, yes, it is quite conservative in its appearance. And it's something that really was used, the notion of respectability really was used to control Black women's freedom and control Black women's bodies, and and particularly the idea that Black women had to have a good reputation. They had to be pious, and they had to be educated, and then they had to be loyal and faithful to their husbands and to their fathers. That's absolutely a key aspect of respectability. But one of the other, the lesser known aspects of this idea of respectability is that black women have a particular uh, responsibility to each other, that they were very mindful that sort of white communities or, or external communities were looking at black women and making unduly and unfair judgments about black womanhood. And so they wanted to take control of that narrative and say that 
if African-American women are being mistreated, then that shouldn't be held against them in terms of their personal morality, that the focus had to be on the mistreatment and not on the woman herself. And so they really do take it upon themselves to expose the brutality of prisons and say it's the prison system that is raping black women or is murdering black women. It's not black women's bad morality that's contributing to this. And then they take it a step further and say, if these prisons are mistreating black women, then these club women are going to come up with alternatives to prisons, particularly for children. So they're going to come up with reformatory schools or industrial schools so that children will not be into that convict leasing system, which has such a bad effect on the Black community as a whole. In other words, since the state-run prisons were so horrific, and this was the era of convict leasing, which was slavery by another name, the focus of many of these women's projects was to create institutions that were outside of that horrible system. Absolutely. And as I tell my students, we have convict leasing now. We just call it another name. We don't call it slavery. We call it prison labor. Or I tell my students that, particularly in here in Kentucky, but I used to live in Louisiana, where you could get into your car and drive down the highway and you would see men in orange jumpsuits cleaning up the highway. And you can see that in Kentucky too. And I would say that is convict leasing <laughs> because those men are not getting any money from the state. They're getting paid five cents an hour or 10 cents an hour. And they have to use that money to apply to their commissary. But the people who are actually leasing that labor, like a company is leasing them out or the state is leasing them out to a company, they're getting the money for it. And the way that that affects African-American women a hundred years ago or more so is that It's the same system, but black women were leased out to work as domestic servants in maybe the prison boss's home, or they were leased out to take care of the children, or they were leased out to make the food or do the laundry. And what we know from the reports of domestic servants is that that type of job put them at terrible risk of sexual harassment. They were sexually harassed all the time. And some of the women were even raped by their employers and there was no recourse. And it's that, it's that sense of black women being vulnerable to these types of outrages that really galvanize club women to say, we've got to put a stop to this. We've got to expose this. We've got to put a stop to this. And we've got to come up with alternatives for this. Some of the slanders against black women are quite familiar to people today. For example, Mm -hmm. black women were accused not only of being amoral themselves, but it was said that black female amorality was the root of their imprisonment and also the reason that their children went to prison. But this is also the same period in which black women were raising generations of white children. So they were quite moral enough to raise white children, but condemned for the imprisonment of their own. That gets at the very heart of the new research that's being done right now. You have put your finger on it because this prison system, the convict leasing system, exposes 
the central lie at the center of women's imprisonment uh, throughout the 20th century, which is that somehow black women are great mothers to white children, even if they are uh, felons or prisoners. But at the same time, they are terrible mothers to their own children. That is one of the most prevalent stereotypes that emerges uh, about black women and motherhood in the 20th century. And so, again, what these club women are trying to do, they're not just trying to save black women, saving the bodies of black women. They're also trying to save the reputations of black motherhood in order to say black motherhood is as uplifting and as decent as white motherhood is. And when black women are being thrown into jail and they are facing sort of rape and assault and other forms of abuse, that that harms not just the black woman's body, but it harms motherhood itself. So they were trying to expand that discussion about what it means to be a good mother. And they were asking the exact same question that you posed, which is how is it that on outside of jail, popular culture depicts African-American women as bad mothers to their own children. But inside of jail, especially when black women are taking care of white children, African-American women are considered to be great mothers. How do we um, thread the needle or how do we square the circle? And it's because of the way that motherhood itself is depicted. And again, club women are trying to take control of that narrative. You report in your article that Black activist women at that time believed that the gendered component of the convict leasing system treated African-American women far worse because they attacked Black women's sexuality and their womanhood. Yes. And in fact, I was reading a story recently, as in two days ago, that said that women... uh, prisoners, black and white, but most of the prison inmates are black in the 20th century, receive much harsher punishment for minor infractions than men do. And that's the result of a recent report. And so, again, this is also something that stems back, that goes back uh, at least 100 years, if not more, that black women aren't just punished more harshly, but they are punished in a way in which the effects are much more long-term. So given the the current example, one particular former prisoner, former inmate, said that she was punished for calling her daughter. Like uh, her privileges were taken away, using the phone to call her daughter. Her privileges were taken away and she was put into solitary confinement. And that lasted like three months. So that's a long-term effect. And a hundred and some odd years ago, it was the same thing. It's it's the same type of harsh punishment. So if a woman talked back to her prison guard, maybe she was put on the the work line, or maybe she was put on the line to work with men, and maybe she was exposed to even more sexual violence, or she was forced to pay back maybe court fines or something. But if her family was poor, she wasn't able to do that. And that extended her time in prison. It's all these different ways in which women are affected specifically by gender. And the most obvious way that I'm leaving out is that if a woman is raped in prison and she gets pregnant, then she's also subject to violence that happens to pregnant women. She might be beaten so that the baby is lost or she gives birth to the child, but the child is taken away because the child is evidence that there was a sexual assault in prison. 
So those gendered ways also have to be taken into account. Although we must point out that under Jim Crow, it was often almost impossible for a woman, a black woman, to testify in court about such a rape. Yeah, because the way that the prisons work and the way that Jim Crow works, black people's voices were never recorded in court if they stood in contradiction to white voices. And that is doubly or triply the case when it comes to prisoners. So no one's going to take the word of a black woman prisoner over the word of the white warden or the white prison guard. Jim Crow makes that type of testimony virtually impossible. Now, we've been speaking of this ideology of respectability that dominated so many of the women's clubs, but not all of the activists thought that way, and certainly not Ida B. Wells. She was much more. She, she, I, I think she had little patience for the doctrine of respectability. She had known people who had been lynched, and she knew that lynching was one of the great crimes of the 20th century that had not been prosecuted, that people were literally getting away with killing black women and children and black men and boys. So she really wasn't interested in the procedures and the organizations that were quite bureaucratic, but took a a gradual approach to dealing with these types of civil rights abuses. She as a journalist, was famous for just getting right on in there, for just going to the site of a riot or going to a prison and and, and interviewing people and then writing up their stories. And I think that she remains, in African-American history, the most, she's someone who was automatically associated with anti-lynching and, and anti-prisons, more than any other journalist, I think, in the 20th century, more than any other person, I think, in the 20th century. In today's era of mass black incarceration, we see that women's representation in prison continues to proportionately increase. And we also all know that it is women, mothers and girlfriends and sisters who predominate in those who visit the largely male prisons far away from the big cities where the inmates come Mm -hmm. from. Do you see a similar kind of heavily female involvement in today's anti-prison or prison abolition movement? I absolutely do. It occurs to me that Angela Davis has been working on prison abolition for the last two decades. And it's not just Angela Davis. It is a former president of the Black Panther Party, Elaine Brown. She was also working on anti-prisons in the late 1990s. And much of the Black Lives Matter movement, which focuses on police brutality, has an element of prison reform and an end to mass incarceration. And African-American women have been credited as being the founders of Black Lives Matter. So I think Black women, they are at the vanguard of the movement. They are people who who take a much more holistic approach when they think about prison abolition or an end to mass incarceration, because they're not focusing just on the individual, which previous anti-mass incarceration or previous prison reform movements focused on the individual. 
Today, in the 21st century, the focus is on how incarcerating this individual affects the entire community, affects their ability to have a job, affects their ability to have housing, affects their ability to have education, and how the absence of those resources also continue to have a negative impact on Black communities, and particularly poor Black communities. So I think African-American women really are continuing this organization for prison reform, and they are the public face of prison reform. And I have to say that that's been the case of several 21st century movements as well. If I think about the Me Too movement from 2017, it caught fire after several exposés of political figures and celebrities. But as we know, Me Too was founded 10 years prior to that by Tawana Burke on Twitter. And it was only recently that Tawana Burke has gotten the uh, kudos that she deserved for founding the movement almost 12 years ago. So I see the same thing happening with prison reform. Just today, the House of Representatives passed the first ever anti-lynching bill, federal, making lynching a federal crime. There had been something like 200 attempts in the last 100 years, 120 years to make this a federal crime. And finally, in the 21st century, anti-lynching, which was led by a black woman, Ida B. Wells, is now a federal crime. And I think that that's both good news and bad news. The good news, of course, is that this crime is now recognized as being sort of a national disgrace. But that it would take something like 120 years to get to this place after 200 attempts speaks to the, the level of resistance to recognizing the impact that this national disgrace has had on our national history. And I think it's the same thing with prison reform, that I do believe that eventually we'll get there, but the road has not been easy and it will not get easier. Many times we have to wait until the timing is right and when people are ready to take on this issue fully. But the work that's being done now, as the work that was done 100 years ago, is still vital and important. That was Professor Nikki Brown speaking from the University of New Orleans. The last of the Surviving Move 9 members has been released from prison. Mumia Abu-Jamal, the nation's best-known political prisoner, filed this report for Prison Radio. For Delbert Africa, a member of the Move organization, his imprisonment for his membership in MOVE has led to what the late Nelson Mandela called a long walk to freedom. On August 8, 1978, Delbert was beaten brutally, senseless. His jawbone was broken. To make matters worse and to add insult to injury. When several cops were prosecuted for this vicious, brutal beating of Delbert, a Philadelphia judge would willy-nilly dismiss everything, all of the charges, and he dismissed the jury, which was imported from a Pennsylvania county, one of the whitest rural counties in the state an issue, an acquittal, despite videotape evidence. The judge, incredibly, 
writes an opinion that justifies Delbert's beating by citing to his muscularity, I kid you not, for Delbert was apparently well-built, and the poor cops were frightened that he had so much musculature. Shortly after this beating occurred and was denied by police at a press conference later that day in City Hall, it was broadcast all across the city of Philadelphia. At a public meeting in Center City a few days later, a popular black politician, the late city councilman Lucian Blackwell, told a crowd of blacks that, this is a direct quote, Delbert Africa is one of the greatest black men who have ever lived. I'm told that Delbert's beating can be seen today on YouTube, so check it out. Today, Delbert Africa is free after 42 years in the joint. He is free to tell his own story now. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Momia Abu-Jamal. Before there was a movement against the Vietnam War, there was a movement against U.S. militarism and support for white colonial regimes. Sharice Burden-Stelly is a professor of Africana Studies and Political Science at Carleton College. She wrote an article for the Du Bois Review titled, in Battle for Peace During Scoundrel Time, W.E.B. Du Bois and United States Repression of Radical Black Peace Activism. We asked Professor Stelly, who were the scoundrels during scoundrel time? Of course, it's the U.S. government that were the scoundrels during this time. So this concept of scoundrel time comes from the playwright Lillian Hellman, and she described this period of McCarthyism and of rampant anti-communism as scoundrel time. And so at this moment, the U.S. government was using anti-communism as a dragnet to police and criminalize and surveil all sorts of progressive and radical enunciations, not least peace activism. Certainly not least. In fact, it appears from your article that they were at the top of the most unwanted list. Absolutely. And I talk about radical black peace activism in particular because this was not just about the absence of war. This particular articulation was anti-imperial, it was anti-colonial, anti-capitalist, and demanded an end to the United States policing of the world for the purposes of accumulation and for repressing any sort of progressive or counterinsurgent or counterhegemonic movements. So they weren't just saying, give peace a chance, but they held a world view and painted a picture of U.S. imperialism and U.S. militarism as being the main enemies of peace. 
and not only the main enemies of peace, but also the main enemies of progress of all sorts. So whether that be racial justice, whether that be an opportunity for human flourishing, whether that be peaceful coexistence, all of these things were constantly being menaced by this era of what came to be perpetual war with, of course, the United States at the helm. Well, that certainly is an indictment of the U.S. ruling order, and that ruling order indicted them back politically and legally. Absolutely. It is, of course, the ruling class, but also civil society became conscripted into this anti-communist condemnation of anything that seemed to be consonant with or adjacent to the quote-unquote Soviet machination. So peace was construed as a Soviet ploy to undermine the uh, American way of life. But of course, as people like Du Bois and Paul Robeson and Claudia Jones articulated, it was indeed, in fact, the United States that was menacing the life chances of the majority of the world by not only dropping the atomic bomb, but also by using force and violence and militarism as their primary form of diplomacy. The U.S. and Britain talked about an iron curtain, but it was a very quick dropping of a red scare curtain in the United States only years after the Soviet Union and the United States had been allies in World War II. Absolutely. And so there was obviously a longer history to this. So there was the Red Scare of 1919 when there were massive deportations through the Palmares in 1919 and 1920, primarily of Russian immigrants, specifically Russian Jews. And so really out of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 came this sort of ongoing and systematic repression of communist and socialist formations. And these waxed and waned depending on the United States' fickle relationship with the Soviet Union, but certainly after World War II, after the U.S. allied with the Soviet Union against fascism, that relationship quickly deteriorated and the U.S. commenced to police communists both abroad and within its own borders. Communists, fellow travelers, and anybody who had politics that seemed to be consonant with those formations. W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson, before and during World War II, were some of the most prominent black personalities in the nation. And Robeson may have been one of the most popular people in the nation. He was a world-renowned entertainer. But that quickly changed with this deterioration in relations with the Soviet Union. Absolutely. Ropes and Du Bois had their passports revoked. They were hounded by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They were constantly called before these government bodies like the Subversive Activities Control Board and the House Committee on Un-American Activities. They had the organizations in which they were involved, like the Council on African Affairs and the Peace Information Center, effectively shut down. They were hounded by the IRS. So the IRS was another mechanism that was used to try to shut down progressive organizations. People were imprisoned for not naming names about persons who were donating to these types of insurgent organizations that, again, were advocating for peace, but peace in the context of a world beyond imperialism and colonialism and racism and all of the sort of fundamental principles of U.S. hegemony. 
and that wider definition of peace and human liberation was not shared by the largest membership organization in Black America, the NAACP, which became a rabid red baiter. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to distinguish between the national organization and then various local chapters. So there were various local chapters that maintained their commitment to racial justice and to forms of militancy. And of course, racial justice is foundational to a broader radical black peace activism. But certainly, the national organization was very much on board with the black Cold War liberalism, which I write about elsewhere and sort of condemning people like Du Bois, people like Robeson, people like Alpheus Hunt who were instrumental in advocating for, both in their writings and in their actions, um, advocating for a world beyond warmongering and militarism and Cold War bifurcation of the world. And therefore, we have to say that the NAACP, certainly the national office of the NAACP, could not be construed in any way as a peace organization. (laughs) I would say no. Well, who were, which political organizations were in that peace configuration at that time? Yeah, so two that I've mentioned, both in the article and just earlier in this conversation, um, the Council on African Affairs, which was one of the earliest organizations to not only promote peace activism, but also to come out against apartheid, right? Because all of these things are connected. The repression of racialized people is a fundamental part of accumulation, much like war is a fundamental tool of accumulation. And so you've got the Council on African Affairs, you've got the Peace Information Center, which was actually only in existence for about uh, six months before it was um, shut down because of perpetual harassment from the government. You have the Sojourners for Truth and Justice, which was another short-lived black women's organization who were against war and the way in which war conscripted young, racialized, specifically black men into war to go and fight against other racialized people, ostensibly for rights that they did not themselves enjoy at home and the ways in which Black men were being sacrificed for an imperialist war. So these are just three of the organizations that were instrumental in pushing forward uh, radical Black peace activism. And one of the most prominent organizations on the other side of that was the House Un-American Activities Committee, which red-baited on television as mass entertainment Yes, the House Committee on American Activities comes out of these earlier formations like the Fish Committee and the McCormick-Dickenstein Committee. So these committees that are meant to ostensibly root out fascism, but quickly turn into anti-communist organizations almost exclusively. So the initial victims of these sorts of committees was the Socialist Party, but then quickly the CPUSA, Communist Party of the United States of America, became one of its primary targets. But again, the specter of communism or the specter of the communists was actually meant to not only target communists, but target anybody who had progressive politics. And so the House Committee on American Activities spent millions and millions of dollars holding these hearings, subpoenaing people, and basically making it, quote-unquote, bringing subversives to the light with all sorts of spurious or unreliable information. 
stool pigeons, paid informants, and doing this work, this very sort of spectacular work, meaning that it was on television, it was in the newspapers. And so spectacle was a very important aspect of ostensibly rooting out communists from government and from society writ large. But the fact of the matter was that the Communist Party USA was at some points in history the only national political organization of any size that unequivocally favored total integration at home and decolonization abroad. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's just an objective fact. And of course, these commitments wax and wane over time. But as you're saying, like these were the organizations that were pushing for unions that were integrated, that were pushing against Jim Crow formations in ostensibly progressive organizations, as well as doing lots of work on the ground on behalf of racial justice. So, of course, the Scottsboro case is a glaring example of that, whereby, you know, internationalizing this case, not only as a case of racism, a example of U.S. imperialism in the context of the Great Depression. And so, yes, I think people can say whatever they want about the CPUSA at different moments in time, but Absolutely, it was an organization that was pushing for the types of politics that also came to be embodied in radical black peace activism. Du Bois left the country, Claudia Jones was deported, and Robeson was made into a non-person. But these radical black peace activists had lots of political children. Absolutely. So part of what I write about at the end of the article was, so the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, when they came out against the war, the Revolutionary Action Movement, when they are expressing their solidarity with the Northern Vietnamese freedom fighters, and then, of course, contemporarily, you have the Black Alliance for Peace. So I think that these different formations, amongst many others, are carrying on the sort of torch of a peace politics that is simultaneously anti-capitalist and anti-imperial, and for the building of an egalitarian global society in which the menace of U.S. domination is eradicated. Yes, these organizations and personalities of the 60s could not have enunciated such a broad left program, international and domestic and economic, without their predecessors among the radical black peace activists that you speak of. And these, of course, include people like Alpheus Hunton, who I mentioned earlier, William Patterson, the Jacksons, so James and Esther V. Cooper Jackson, Louis Burnham, so a whole host of Black radical and progressive folks who really were struggling for this peace formation throughout their lives and also passed this on to later generations of activists. And in today's world, we have an FBI that goes looking for what it calls Black identity extremists. And so, of course, this, you know, this idea of black extremism emanates from the specter of the communist, as does this whole discourse of terrorism. And so the anti-communist logic that criminalized peace activism is also the logic that sort of animates this idea of black identity extremists. So people who believe in black nationalism or believe that the police force is indeed and in fact a sort of occupying military force meant to create genocidal conditions for black folks. Black identity 
identity extremists ostensibly are people who are hostile toward the government and toward the police for no reason other than being subversive, when indeed, in fact, these people, we are hostile toward police forces because they are indiscriminately violent and because they have the monopoly on force. They think that they can undermine the life chances of racialized and poor people with impunity. And so defense of life becomes criminalized under these logics. And yet today, there are also folks who style themselves as activists and are known around the country as activists, but who don't have any analysis of the global situation at all. Sure. Of course, I'm always invoking the work of Gerald Horn, but he talks about the ways in which this period of repression created the conditions for a turn inward and created a renationalization of racial struggles or struggles for civil rights or redistribution, whereby currently, you know, in our current moment, we don't necessarily have a robust understanding of the connections between, let us say, the Palestinian situation or the Syrian situation or the situation in Venezuela and the very real connections to the deteriorating life conditions and chances of racialized people in the United States. Any progressive platform, any radical platform, any revitalizing of the left must have a program that contends with the possibility of peace and the struggle for peace and the end of perpetual war, because our current formation rooted in imperialism and rooted in Euro-American domination is absolutely unsustainable. And so the advocacy of peace or radical black peace activism is not kumbaya, right? It is the fundamental demand for a livable world, and it's absolutely vital for an alternative future. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.